For anyone who has heard me present or speak as a guest on another podcast, you've heard that I'm extremely passionate about trauma-informed and restorative practices. My wife and I have been foster parents for over six years, and we've had the amazing opportunity to learn from Karen Purvis, Trust-Based Relational Interventions, which has really shaped my view as an educational leader. After having the opportunity to meet my guest in person and learn what she's doing on her campus, I had to have her return to the Aspire podcast. This week's guest, Allison Apsey, shares how she used her knowledge of choice theory and trauma-informed practices to reshape her school's culture. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Allison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is a pleasure to be back on. Yes. And I'm even more excited because we've met in person. We now. have met. So we are BFFs. <laughs> we are BFFs. It was awesome <laughs> to meet you in person at the Teach Better Conference. And I needed to share with the listeners that I actually had an opportunity to sit down across the table from Allison. And she said such amazing things. And then I listened to the recording and a session just got out. And there was so much background noise that it did not give justice. So I had to get you back on. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, I'm excited to be here. The Teach Better Conference. It was wonderful. It was fantastic to meet you in person and meet so many other wonderful educators. And I want to give you an opportunity because I know that you had an important topic that you spoke on at the conference. And I just wanted you to be able to share that with the listeners. So what was it that you spoke on at the Teach Better Conference? So my session was titled Helping Others Discover the Best in Themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's really about the idea that trauma-informed practices actually are good for everyone we encounter because we're not going to know their stories. Even people that we talk to every day, we're not going to know everything in their background. Mm -hmm. So treating everyone with compassion and trying to understand the motivation behind behavior and understand the different lenses through which we all view the world is so good for everyone in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I presented eight, I think six steps to help others discover the best in themselves. Yeah. I know that you've had some practice on your campus and you've implemented some things in regards to trauma-informed and, and restorative practices. And for me, that's a passion of mine and that's something I spoke on at the Teach Better Conference and have tried to dive in on a campus. So I know there's a lot of leaders out there that have heard about restorative practices but don't really know kind of how to implement that. So what was your starting point on your campus? Wow. Yeah, we've been on a big journey to create a multi-tiered system of support for behavior. And we really needed to start at tier one because we didn't have consistent expectations to begin with. Mm -hmm. We didn't have consistent SDL curriculum and we didn't have a consistent plan for responding when behavior issues came up. So really those three things were key in the, the beginning of our journey because for trauma-informed practices, our students need to understand what the expectations are mm -hmm. and they need to be explicitly taught. And then, of course, that self-awareness and relationship skills, all those SEL competencies need to be explicitly taught. But then the other thing is they need to know like what happens if I make a choice that hurts someone else, whether you know physically it might hurt someone else or you know verbally or if I'm disrupting the learning in the classroom and not being respectful, what happened? So we created a rubric that helps us with responding to behavior. So we just categorize behavior into three different levels. Mm -hmm. 
And then we have a response for, okay, if it happens once, here's what's going to, here's what our response is if it happens twice. And so the restorative parts are that it's twofold. Number one, the first thing that we need to do is teach. Mm -hmm. So just having a discussion with, we have a mat that lays out all of our expectations and then lays out our SEL competencies. And we just have a discussion with the student about like, you know, what, what went wrong here to teach those expectations and the competencies. But then the second step in restoration is repairing the damage that was caused by the behavior choice. And so then that's the process that we work through with students. That's the consequence. It's how can you repair this? And they need a lot of support and coaching uh, along and especially depending on their grade level. Part of that rubric, we implemented something that we call restorative recess. We're not in love with the idea that it happens during recess. We just can't find another time that doesn't interfere with academics to help with that restorative practice. So there's a process. Students go meet with a staff member at recess time if they need to, if they've you know made a bad behavior choice or a, a choice that hurts someone else or hurt the learning. They go and work through that with a staff member and they come up with a plan to repair whatever the issue was. And so that's that's the consequence. It's a pretty incredible and empowering response mm-hmm. to behavior issues that come up. We have also implemented, we call it Q time because we're Quincy Elementary. Mm-hmm. And Q time, it happens four times a week for about 15 minutes each time. And it's where we teach our social emotional curriculum. But we also do tier two behavior support. So if our data is showing that there's a particular behavior issue, or if we notice that a small group of students need support with like, say, like blurting out during class or something like that, then we can pull that small group and do that small group instruction. Just like we do for academic interventions, we designated that time to support students with behavior interventions. Okay, so you said so much and I want to unpack it all. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, that's awesome. No. With the expectations, I want to start with the first part of your answer. You know, with our campus, we had a PBIS committee and they talked about expectations, but it was like create expectations for the cafeteria, for the hallways, for the classroom. Have you guys as a campus constructed something similar or is it just tier one is just the classroom as far as expectations? And then do those expectations work purely the teachers constructing them or is it the students have ownership, so it's like a, a relationship agreement. Yeah, both. So we do have a matrix that outlines expectations for like every area of the school, whether it's the playground or, you know, where the students go when they arrive at school or the cafeteria or the hallways or the bathroom. Sure. So we have we ha- we do have a matrix of expectations for every area. And then we also have like classroom contracts or agreements in each classroom Mm -hmm. that the students help create. But that that matrix itself is something that we as a staff created and that's consistent from year to year. With the matrix, is it like a rubric in regards to what we would see in the academic world, but for discipline? We do have a rubric for discipline, but the matrix itself, it just states the expectations. Okay. So we're the Ducks, D-U-X, that's our mascot in our district. So I hope I can say this from memory. So each area of the school has expectations for the D, which stands for depend on each other. The U stands for understand our own value. And the X stands for expect to be safe. So in each of those components, so if we look at the playground, 
we have expectations that are aligned with depending on each other and understanding our own value and expecting to be safe. Awesome. And that's, that's outlined for every area of the school. So I just visited a elementary school in my own district and they do a 10 minute time in the morning, kind of like a check-in. Do you guys do any type of check-in for your social emotional learning component with your students? We do. We actually started using an app. We have iPads for our students. So there's a couple of different components. We have an app that helps with sensory breaks that gives students like guidance on they need a sensory break, just depending on how they're feeling, gives selection of activities that's supportive, but also implementing different types of check-ins for, for when they come in first thing in the morning, but then also when they come back to the classroom after lunch and recess to do another check-in. So that is an area that we're working on, not there yet. So in regards to social emotional learning, it sounds like you might have a curriculum. Is there something that you purchased to help guide that or was that something that your campus developed on their own? So last year we developed it on our own. The CASO like competencies and indicators have been adopted by the state of Michigan. Mm -hmm. So we used those and just turned them into more student friendly language and then created lessons based on those competencies and indicators. But this year, we're piloting a program called Purposeful People, which um, was created by Character Strong. Yeah. Uh, that's Hans, yeah, right? Hans, Apple, yeah. Apple, yeah. So they created the the elementary component, and it's brand new. It's called Purposeful People. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's based on character traits, but there are SEL components definitely intertwined, empathy involved in, in all of the lessons and um, self-awareness. So we're piloting that right now and and really enjoying that process. So what the future is going to hold is a little bit up in the air because we're looking as a district to adopt a consistent district-wide SEL curriculum. So that's a work in progress. Yeah. So Allison, what was kind of your journey and why did you choose to go down the path of SEL and restorative practices? Well, my background dating from, oh gosh, 1998 in my first year of teaching, I was trained in William Glasser's choice theory. And so choice theory is that we all behavior is purposeful, that the only person we can control is ourselves and understanding the motivation behind our own behavior helps us be a more effective person and helps us support the people around us. And and then understanding the motivation behind others behavior helps us not take their behavior personally. And then also helps us support the people around us in meeting their needs too. So, and I share that because there's so much overlap between trauma-informed practices and my choice theory, reality therapy background, that when we first started traveling down this road to become a trauma-informed school and a trauma-informed district, it just spoke my language, spoke to my heart. And so I ventured off on my own and got a certification and as a trauma-informed practitioner and really explored, just dove into research and exploring trauma-informed practices. And then I'm so fortunate that my school staff just really jumped on board and embraced it. So at the same time as we were looking at how can we provide trauma-informed support to our students, we also were looking at how can we create a better, more consistent, multi-tiered system of support for behavior for all students. And so 
it kind of was just a, a beautiful marriage to to do that together. So we we have a leadership team at our school. We call it the MTSSB leadership team, and we work together with with every new initiative and we have a representative from every grade level so we can get input from all staff members with everything we do with that because you just talked about the staff component and that everyone was on board and that's a wonderful because i've been on some campuses where there's kind of a great divide of you know we feel like we want more of a traditional setup versus the restorative and so <laughs> what did um, training look like for your staff did you bring someone in to to speak or did you do a book study or what was it so that your staff felt comfortable with the new practices and they could implement it right away? We did bring someone in to speak. We're fortunate that in our area, we have an an expert in trauma-informed practices. Her name is Dr. Stephanie Grant. And she came in and kicked off the whole district a couple years ago. And then we've we've had her back and we've had other um, speakers from like our ISD come and present. So that's been really helpful. I also am really fortunate that we have an internal expert. One of um, my teachers is half-time teacher at our school, but then also half-time trauma-informed consultant across the area. So she's a tremendous resource and she's on our leadership team. So we're really thankful for her. Did you have to add any additional staff to help with the restorative practices and the trauma-formed practices, or did you find opportunities or find ways for your current staff to embed those into the current system? We really did find ways for the the current staff to embed the practices into our system. Just for example, the, the restorative recess, we implemented it halfway through last year and then just asked for volunteers, teachers who would be willing to do, you know, a restorative recess one day a week and got volunteers. And it was a great practice for teachers to have the opportunity to work with students in that way. We do have a paraprofessional who works for five and a half hours a day, and she's called our student success coordinator. And she does some of the restorative recesses. And we kind of look at her like the mom of the school just any students who, I mean, it could be a dad, doesn't have to be a mom, but <laughs> any students who need um, extra TLC or support in any way, we, um, so she has kind of a caseload of students that she works with and they do jobs around the school or she'll just sit next to them while they're working or, you know, just whatever they need. So we feel very fortunate to have that support and that's new. So Allison, if there's anyone that's out there, uh, administrator that's or really any educator that is looking to implement these practices on their own campus, since you've been through the the whole practice now, what is some advice you would give them? To start with a team and look at tier one. I think we, I think often we want to start with tier three because those are the behaviors that are just screaming out to us. Whenever we started talking about behavior, teachers on my campus would immediately go to those students who need tier three support, like that's where their mind would go. And of course, because we, we want to help those students, we're not sure how, but we really need to start with tier one because we need to provide, you know, consistent support and curriculum for all students. And we can't really affect the, the tier two or the tier three until we have that solid tier one. Mm-hmm. So we're going to catch a lot of what's going on with tier one. And then focusing on, you know, shoring up tier two supports is would be a next step. And then 
tier three. And of course, like we have to make sure students are safe. But we just didn't make any changes to our tier three supports mm -hmm. until we had the other tiers solidly in place. So I think that's a key. And then, you know, you said it was good that we had everybody on board. And the reality is you never have everybody on board. But I can't remember. I have like a Todd Whitaker quote in my office or something that that we're not going to let the least common denominator decide our next move. Yep. But basically, you know, we're going to have some teachers you have across the spectrum. You have teachers who are going to jump on board with any innovative idea and change. And then you have some teachers who are going to be a little bit leery. And then you have teachers who balk at any change that comes their way. Mm -hmm. So we had all that. We plowed forward anyway. And then, you know, eventually it just becomes the way you do things. Yep. It goes from being like, last year, like this revolutionary idea to we started this, this fall and we do restorative recess. That's what we do at Quincy. So it's not this revolutionary idea. It's just what we do. And we have to be willing to, you know, kind of plow through that implementation struggle. As long as we are working with a team and we have, you know, the majority on board, then the others are going to come along and, you know, we, we want to support them wherever they are in their journey and, and help them see the value, but that's not going to stop us from moving ahead. I love what you're doing. I, I love what you've implemented on your campus. I'm going to pivot to a new topic because I know that you released a new book through the lens of serendipity. So for our aspiring leaders who haven't had an opportunity to read the book, will you just give a quick synopsis? Yeah, so it's called Through the Lens of Serendipity, Helping Others Discover the Best in Themselves. And the book encompasses the idea that I, I, I talked about earlier that I spoke about at the Teach Better conference, which is trauma-informed supports are good for all people. So it's, it's about being people-centered, like I like to call it people-centered compassion, and really understanding the motivation behind behavior, understanding that we could look at the same situation in exactly the opposite way and both be right because of all of our past experiences and our values and our beliefs. So just helping us understand that everybody has a story, everybody deserves compassion, and there are some strategies that we can implement to help everyone in, in our lives discover the best in themselves. And so it, I, I really think it's a, a great book for staff to read together. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I love in the book, if I do say so myself, <laughs> is the idea that I'll just get, tell you the story. You can look outside your window and see your neighbor trimming your hedges or trimming something on your in your yard. And one person would look out there and be like, oh, my gosh, what a great guy. Like, I cannot believe he's doing that for me. Whereas another person could look out at that same situation and be like, are you kidding me? Like I'm two days late in trimming my yard and you're going to come over here and trim it for me. And it's all based on like our perceptions of ourselves, our past experiences. We can both look at the same situation and perceive it like 180 degrees differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and from our own perspectives, we are both right. And if we understand like what's going on with each other and that we each have a story, we might not know it, but we have a story and there's a reason for the way we behave. It just is um, incredibly helpful in providing that compassion to each other. 
I know that you've got another project in the works and there's some big news that you are coming out with a fiction chapter book. So I just need to know details about this new project. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So <laughs> I just actually was sharing it with one of my fifth grade classes because I have one last chance to make some edits before it goes into publication at the end of this month. So it should be available at the end of January or beginning of February. But basically, it's a realistic fiction chapter book for middle grades. The main character is in sixth grade, but it takes the, some of the ideas from the path to serendipity, my first book, and through the lens of serendipity and puts them in um, a compelling story that I think middle grade students will really like, but also gives us this opportunity to teach them about the motivation behind behavior and that the only person we can control is ourselves. And that even if it seems unfair, sometimes if we want a situation to change, we have to be the change. And then it also really focuses on as middle grades students, you have adults around you who can provide some help and insights and you don't have to handle things on your own. So turning toward trusted adults is a theme in the book also. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of autobiographical components to it. And the main, main character's name is Kippoli. And that was my mom's name. She mm -hmm. passed away seven years ago, but I'm really excited to have her unusual name kind yeah. of live on in this way. So I can't wait to, to share it. That's such an important topic too with, you know, with our young folks and, and how they're feeling about themselves and just the trials that they have in their life. What led you to those topics for this book? Really, I was a seventh and eighth grade teacher and I was teaching William Glasser's choice theory to my students who, you know, grades three through eight. And I always wanted as a teacher to have a fiction book that would be an interesting and compelling story for students to serve as like a launching pad for teaching some of the components because I just thought it would help them understand it in context. Mm -hmm. And so I think this book will lend itself to, you know, a classroom read aloud or using in classrooms. But I also hope that the story is interesting and compelling enough that students would want to pick it up and read it on their own. So it's my first venture into fiction chapter books. I keep trying new genres. Yeah. Like I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was a very fun process to write this book and publish it. And it was very different than the nonfiction books that I've written thus far. Allison, you have been on the podcast before and anyone that is listening now and that has not listened to that interview, you need to do that because Allison gave some amazing wisdom throughout that interview. But I also love talking about aspiring leadership. So for those who may not hold a leadership position, what are some other ways our aspiring leaders can make an immediate impact? Okay, for, for first of all, like bless you for being aspiring leaders because I think the principalship gets a bad rap sometimes. And I think sometimes it's of our own creation because it, it is a challenging job, but man, oh man, I think I have the best job on the face of the planet. So for those of you who are aspiring leaders, like welcome to the fold. So excited to have you. And then share, share the skills, the ideas, your own creativity in any way you can whether it's sharing on your own campus just by talking with teachers and saying, hey, like I tried something, it was awesome. 
or blogging or podcasting or being on Twitter or Facebook in any means that you can, um, opening the doors to your classroom and sharing, I think is a, a great way to give back to your community and our profession. But I think it's also a great way to showcase the skills that you have and help you get that first admin job. So in what ways could they expand their knowledge in leadership? I mean, you've just listed a whole host of options for them to share, but what would be some good opportunities or maybe some impactful opportunities that you had that would allow them to grow in their leadership? I think if they could have the opportunity to shadow different principles, even if it's for an hour and not just your own building principle, but get out and see other principles, even at different levels, just to learn from the principal, see that day-to-day job, what it looks like, see what maybe you would want to emulate and maybe what you don't want to emulate. But I think that would, that hands-on experience would be invaluable. All right. So I have another question that is totally on a different topic. So why should our listeners go to PirateCon this summer? (laughs) Because we'll be there? (laughs) Yes, we will be there. (laughs) oh my gosh like can I can't even I still can't wrap my head around pirate con and how phenomenal it's going to be like every session that you go to is going to be a keynote in itself oh my gosh and just to like I'm so excited to meet some of the DVC authors that I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet it is going to be just like out of this world I know the energy it's going to be electric. Yes. The energy is going to be incredible. And there's so many fun things. The Teach Better conference, I one of the things I loved about it was the networking yes. um, after the conference. So it just felt like a, a big family. And mm-hmm. I think, and I know PirateCon is going to be the same way. There's going to be opportunities outside of the conference itself to network and mingle and get to know each other. So it's going to feel like we're all one big, you know, 500 people plus family. Yeah. It's going to be incredible. It will be. So I hope to see you all there. The Aspire podcast will be there. So I'm hoping that I get a chance to sit down across the table from you again so that we can talk some of more. Of course. Since we're speaking of conferences, I'm so excited to announce that the Aspire podcast is now an official sponsor of Todd Nesloni's Celebrate Your Story event. If you're in Texas, this is going to be the ultimate PD event. Make sure you sign up soon. I know that there's not many tickets left. You can find the link and more details for this event in the show notes. I cannot wait to speak on aspiring leadership and meet everyone in attendance. So how can our listeners connect with you on social media? I'm at Allison Apsey everywhere. So on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or AllisonApsey.com. You can reach me at AllisonApsey at gmail.com. I'm happy to share any resources that we've created with anybody who emailed me. So I just encourage you to connect with me in, in any of those ways. Allison, it's always so much fun to talk with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's so fun to talk to you too.